Hello, and welcome to the latest CSF podcast on actual spondyloarthritis. We'll be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis alongside our psoriatic arthritis podcasts. And we'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help you keep up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of actual SPA. First of all, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Sofia Ramiro, consultant rheumatologist and senior researcher at Leiden University Medical Center and Zouderland Medical Center in the Netherlands. With me today is Professor Xenophon Baraliakos, Professor of Internal Medicine and Rheumatology at the Ruhr University in Bochum and a senior consultant and scientific coordinator of the Rheumatology Center, Roma Centrum Ruhrgebiet in Herne, Germany. And we are also joined by Professor Atul Deodar, Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of Rheumatology Clinics in the Div Division of Arthritis and Rheumatic Diseases at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, United States of America. And of course, if you want to find out more about us and the papers we discussed today, please head over to the CSF website, www.cytokinesignaling.com. So Xenophon, over to you. Thank you, Sophia. In our first paper, the authors evaluated the efficacy and safety of tefacitinib in biologic DMARD naive and TNF-IR patients with ankylosing spondylitis or radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. Our second paper represents, um, the represents the results of two parallel clinical trials that investigated the safety and efficacy of the L17 A and F blocker bimekizumab. Over to you, Atul. Yeah, thanks, uh, Xenophon, and thanks, uh, Sophia. So the first paper is titled Tofacitinib Efficacy and Safety in Patients with Ankylosing Spondylitis by Prior Biologic Disease-Modifying Anti-Rheumatic Drug Use, a post hoc analysis. So the background of this study is that uh, in the US at least, uh, tofacitinib is approved for the treatment of ankylosing spondylitis only after TNF inhibitors have failed to work or actually have been tried before, I should say. So prior exposure to biologic DMAR therapy in patients with AS may influence subsequent treatment responses and drug tolerance. So we wanted to look at a post-hoc analysis to look at the efficacy and safety of tofacitinib by prior biologic DMAR use in patients with active AS in the phase three study. Um, so patients were stratified by prior biologic DMAR use and outcomes were assessed to week 16 where patients were randomized one is to one on tofacitinib 5 milligram BID or placebo and week 48 where the placebo group was switched, of course, uh, to tofacitinib at week 16. What we found was from week 4 to week 48, ASAS 20, ASAS 40, and ASAS 5 by 6 response rates to tofacitinib were greater in the biologic DMARD naive than TNF inhibitor inadequate responder patients as expected. This is numerically better in biologic DMARD naive patients, but when you look at the magnitude. So if you look at the difference between the active drug and the placebo, it was pretty similar for biologic DMAR naive and TNF inhibitor inadequate responder. 
the ASDAS responses and the uh, least square mean change from baseline in the ASDAS and high sensitivity CRP were also numerically greater with tofacitinib than placebo in both biologic NEMAR groups, naive as well as uh, IR. BASDI 50 response rates and LS mean change from baseline in BASDI were greater in the biologic NEMAR naive than TNF uh, inhibitor inadequate responder patient between weeks 16 and 48. And when we looked at the AS quality of life and SF36 physical component survey, the LS mean change from baseline was more prominent in the biologic demand naive than the TNF inhibitor inadequate responder patient. The discontinuation rates of the study drug due to adverse event was numerically higher in TNF inhibitor inadequate responder subgroup, which is not unusual, something similar has been observed with other drugs as well, other biologics, that patients who are TNF inhibitor inadequate responder somehow drop out sooner with um, for lack of efficacy or more adverse effects compared to those who are biologic demand naive. So in conclusion, tofacitinib generally demonstrated greater efficacy than placebo for biologic demand naive and TNF inhibitor inadequate responder. The biologic demand naive patients had numerically higher responses, but the delta between the placebo and the active drug was pretty similar. And these response rates were sustained up to week 48. And the benefit risk balance for tofacitinib treatment was favorable in both biologic demand naive and TNF inhibitor inadequate responder patients with AS. Now, one thing which I must mention is the study, total study was 270 patients. And 77% of the patients were biologic demand naive. So the inadequate responder patient, the, it's a pretty small group, 31 patients who were on, who were biologic demand, uh, TNF inhibitor inadequate responder, 31 of them had received um, tofacitinib and 31 were on placebo. So we are comparing small groups here which is one of the issues here. But the importance of the study is this is the group of patients where in the US um, we will be using this drug uh, because of this black box warning uh, after the uh, oral surveillance study. So what do you guys think? Thank you very much, Natul, for this uh, nice uh, presentation of this uh, important paper. I I totally agree with you. And actually, you mentioned that in the US, we have the black box warning of uh, FDA. In, in Europe, we have EMA warnings, but not all patients need to have uh, been exposed to TNF inhibitors before being treated with check inhibitors. But current practice is that uh, when a new drug class comes to the market, we tends to be more right. used in patients that have been previously exposed uh, to, to previous drugs. So I think, therefore, it's very important to, to get uh, this data in these specific populations and compare, compare them within, the, in this case, within the, the same trial, so the groups can really be compared. I think it's in, informative and important for our daily clinical practice. I think it's also what I would expect and what we see with several of other compounds that response, the magnitude of the response is higher in patients who are TNF uh, um, naive, TNF inhibitors naive, but that also happens with the placebo. And therefore, 
the deltas were similar in in both groups as as you mentioned so yeah. i i yeah. think the data are aligned with our expectations the comment i was going to make i think you already alluded to, to it is was i was going to ask you do we do you think that we ha do we ha have we uh, investigated sufficiently this population of insufficient responders with this small number of patients or would we rather have a specific trial in patients that have previously uh, failed TNF inhibitors as we see right. for some other compounds? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the uh, this was very small numbers, 31 patients versus 31 patients. I mean, it's a pretty small number. Um, I don't think, well, certainly I, I know that there is no study going on specifically in this population. To give you an example, upadacitinib, a different TNF inhibitor specifically did a study in TNF inhibitor inadequate responder patients. Um, and that study showed uh, pretty robust responses in uh, TNF inhibitor inadequate responder patients. Uh, but that's upadacitinib. Profacitinib doesn't have a study. A couple of quick uh, points I wanted to make was uh, the risk of uh, cardiovascular events in ankylosing spondylitis, radiographic and non-radiographic XLSPA patient, and also in psoriatic arthritis for that matter, because the study, there is there is no study like uh, oral surveillance in spondyloarthritis, either in AXPA or in PSA. And uh, the question is uh, whether can we use the same idea that uh, or the same uh, risks above age 65, those who are smokers, past history of cardiovascular disease, are these the people where we should be avoiding uh, this drug, even uh, tofacitinib, even in patients with PSA and axial spondyloarthritis, even though there are no studies. And uh, we recently actually have looked at this and um, that paper is uh, in, um, in production somewhere, um, not published yet, but there our conclusion is that looking at the risk factors in PSA patient and in axial SPA patient with metabolic syndrome and diabetes and hypertension, et cetera, et cetera, we believe that we should use the same precaution uh, that above 65 smokers, past history of cardiovascular disease, be careful. So, I agree with you. I think the same. Uh, yeah, I think the problem is the patients with cardiovascular risk factors. And we have seen uh, postdoc analysis from the oral surveillance and identifying the risk factors mostly associated that, that have high risk, the ones you have mentioned. And therefore, also patients that have had a previous ischemic event, those have been uh, identified as the most uh, important uh, risk factors. On the other hand, perhaps PSA is a little bit different, but if we think about actual SPA, it's more uh, younger population, healthier with less comorbidities. So I, I think the risks are probably less in actual SPA, although uh, we do not have an oral surveillance in our trial population, our patient population, as you mentioned, and I dare yeah. to unfortunately also add, we will not have most likely in the near future because there does not seem to be the clear request uh, for that from the authorities and therefore it will not be conducted. So I, I think we will learn from practice. We will learn with time and we will learn with from RA as well and where we uh, learn how to identify more the patients that uh, are at more risk. So we, identify, we, we managed to stratify risk perhaps a bit uh, better. What do you think about that? Xenophon? Yeah, well, I do believe that this is exactly the case. 
um, it goes along to the to the um, experience we've we've had with other drugs with other issues. Uh, just you know, reminding all the time about or myself also about the the fear of candidiasis when sequinimab came out. Yeah. And that nobody speaks about it anymore. So I think um, uh, we will get. Um, we, I would say we will get used to be to deal with it. Um, and this, of course, uh, is the um, is for the benefit of the patients, since they will automatically get that. I, I call it now a service in terms of really being um, uh, even in a safer place when we make choices choices that we would then be discussing with them. So fully agree. Um, and therefore, I'm also not so much afraid, also not for the RA population, because even there, there might be the need to apply these drugs um, in those who may have some kind of, uh, let's say, um, uh, suspicious history of something. I think that's exactly what we've learned in the last 15, 20 years. And um, this will go on. And um, obviously, um, that's for the benefit of everyone. Yes, totally agree. Just a quick uh, one more point, if I may. Uh, I Last week, I was in India attending the Indian Rheumatology Association annual meeting. And I've made this point before in this group that there are uh, 10 or 11 um, tofacitinibs available. These are generic tofacitinibs, yeah. 10 or 11 brands. And this is by necessity, rheumatologists in India use that because of uh, the cheapness of this drug. Uh, pill, easy to take. You know, I mean, even storage is easy, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I was asking them about this. And of course, there is no um, good sort of data, sort of central data keeping or reporting of data to central authority for myocardial infarctions, et cetera. But people have seen um, exactly the same thing that people who are older and smokers and et cetera, they have had um, bad problems and also infection risk. And I was urging them that they should really look at it much more systematically um, because these data will probably come from uh, places like India where there is a large number of patients being treated with tofacid and, they, um, and, and somebody needs to kind of look at this uh, more carefully. Um, so real life data is going to be important as Sophia, as you were saying earlier. Yes, totally agree with you. And I agree that in that sense, uh, India is positioned uh, in any unique situation of having ex high experience with tofacitinib during, due to the generics, as you mentioned, and they prescribe it a lot. And to the, the numbers in the population as well, mm -hmm. of course, they will have a high experience. So it would be good to indeed learn from them and ideally from studies set up there. Actually, in a, on a slight different note, but not on this topic, but I was uh, in, uh, surprised, not surprised, I was positively surprised to see at ACR that there was a trial, not a, a study presented by Indian colleagues on tapering uh, tofacitinib, and there are no, no studies at all on tapering uh, JAK inhibitors yet. There was yeah. something that we identified in the uh, recommendations as yet an unmet need, and therefore we did not recommend any tapering of JAK inhibitors, only of, biolo of biologic. And in India, due to the, the, the high usage, they are indeed in a position to, to run this type of studies that I think will be very uh, informative for the community. And it will take a much longer time to be run in Western countries. So it would be good if they can be uh, in the lead of that. I agree. Shall we continue to the second paper? Yep, Xenophon, I think. 
Yes, thank you. It's um, it is indeed. Uh, we can go over to it. Um, that second paper is uh, being entitled um, "Bim Treatment in Patients with Active Axial Spondyloarthritis: A 52-Week Efficacy and Safety um, from the Randomized Parallel Phase Three B Mobile One and B Mobile Two Studies." So they have two phase uh, um, three studies, which are being called one and two. So for the study background um, and the, for the preclinical studies that we've gotten, the knowledge we've got, we have seen that there is superiority of bimekizumab in redu reduction of inflammation and the pathological bone formation versus I17A um, alone. And um, the uh, bimekizumab has been approved by the European Commission for the treatment of non-radiographic AXPA, radiographic AXPA and psoriatic arthritis. So in the studies that I'm referring to here, it, they're called again B-Mobile 1 and B-Mobile 2. These are two parallel phase three clinical trials that are evaluating the efficacy and safety of bimikizumab. And this publication reports the clinical efficacy and safety of um, the compound in patients with active axial spondyloarthritis for up to um, one year, 52 weeks. In both trials, patients were randomized one-on-one -on -one, uh, to bimikizumab 160 milligrams um, every four weeks or placebo. And the placebo group was switched to uh, active treatment after the primary endpoint. Uh, this means at week 16. Um, and um, the primary endpoint was uh, ASAS-40. Regarding the results, ASAS-40 responses at week 16 were sustained in TNF uh, inhibitor naive and those who uh, patients who were, uh, were pre-treated with TNF blockers and were randomized with mechizumab at baseline. The rate of ASAS-40 response at week 16 was significantly higher for the treatment group as compared to placebo, which in fact is something that is trivial and expected. Uh, indeed, this was seen here. And similar results were also seen for the other outcomes, such as ASAS-20 and ASAS-PALS responses over the same time periods. A substantial proportion of patients um, in both treatment arms um, uh, also achieved BASTI-50. And at week 16, there was a rapid reduction of uh, high-sensitivity CRP in the treatment arm uh, as compared to placebo, whereas uh, placebo patients um, showed uh, similar effects when uh, they switched, they were switched to bimekizumab. And there were also reductions in morning stiffness, uh, BASFI, AS qual, and also uh, the other outcomes that were observed at uh, week uh, 52. So altogether, we can say that patients that switched from placebo to bimekizumab at week 16 showed comparable improvements to patients given bimekizumab at baseline already by week 52, that was. Efficacy was sustained and consistent in patients with non-radiographic AXPA and radiographic AXPA across the domains of, across both domains, this means of access to arthritis. And regarding safety, the safety profile was consistent with results from phase two, three studies in axial spondyloarthritis and phase three studies in psoriatic arthritis. And well, the question is, of course, what we gain from this um, information for our patients who are being treated in daily practice. Um, on the side note, we do have in the meantime the approval of bimikizumab, we are using it, um, um, I would say relatively largely for a new compound um, due to all this data. And um, I think also that we've seen so far that these results are just, um, you know, roughly presented or briefly presented uh, in um, some more or less um, bullet points 
uh, are in fact also uh, found in daily practice. So it's a, I'm also happy to see what you have um, observed by uh, prescribing the drug because it is important, similar to the discussion we've had before to gain information from daily life. Yeah, definitely, totally agree with you. Thank you very much for this presentation. Uh, responding to your question, I can tell you that uh, in the Netherlands, we do not have yet uh, approval uh, for the rheumatological indications. It's ongoing, the process of requests. Uh, we have some patients already from the dermatology because it's approved and reimbursed for psoriasis, but not so not on patients that we prescribe uh, on uh, uh, from our side, but the ones from psoriasis that are prescribed by the dermatology, I think uh, the, the results are very positive also in daily clinical practice, as, as you are saying. So the ones that we get uh, contact uh, with. And I, I think with the new compound, what you just mentioned is very important, our experience in daily clinical practice. And in the meanwhile, as data is accumulating that we have longer term uh, efficacy uh, demonstrated, the sustained, sustained response demonstrated. And I think that's mostly what uh, this uh, um, paper is, is confirming that there is sustained response, which I think is very important. Making the bridge with the first paper, although I know it was not only the focus of your paper, but there was also the response um, analyzed in patients who are TNF inhibitors, naive and, and insufficient responders. And as opposed to the data on tofacitinib, we here see a, a similar response in patients in both groups, um, which is quite different and unusual compared to what we are, uh, what we would expect. What what would you think about this? Can we explain this? Well, the, uh, as always, um, in the last years we can only explain things after having seen them. This means we cannot predict them. Um, it's good and bad. It's good and bad because we are obviously in the majority of the cases positively um, uh, surprised. So um, I think there is a different way of approaching um, the, um, the targets we have. Both with up by targeting the F domain of IL-17 on top of or together with IL-17A, and with jack uh, inhibitors now, I would dare to say in general, because we have a much broader cytokine um, uh, approach and inhibition. So obviously we may, may indeed be closing gaps here. Um, gaps that we didn't have by um, single cytokine um, inhibition in the past uh, with the biologic demas we've had. And therefore that might be explained by the, well, at least anticipated mode of action. But again, the positive thing here is that um, this anticipation and that um, uh, that uh, these ideas that have been there, they seem to be backed up by this data that we do have both those who have not been treated with a biologic before responding well to the drug, but also those who have failed a, a single cytokine inhibition before be now also in a good shape and obviously more patients responding to these new drugs simply because we're just covering a broader range of inhibition. You know, I have a slightly different uh, take on this and uh, I'm going to take a different disease, psoriatic arthritis, <laughs> and, uh, and and a different drug, <laughs> which is uh, guselcumab. But we looked, so there were two trials um, in guselcumab uh, in psoriatic arthritis, um, in inadequate um, biologic TNF in, inhibitor inadequate responder patient, 
their discover one study was a combined study of um, TNF inhibitor inadequate responder and TNF inhibitor biologic naive patient. But they did a second study called COSMOS, which was purely on patients with psoriatic arthritis who had TNF inhibitor inadequate responder. And we actually had their baseline serum samples of these patients. So, and we compared that and Discover 2 was a study of purely TNF inhibitor inadequate, uh, naive population. And what we found out was patients who were TNF inhibitor inadequate responder at baseline before they got guselgumab had much higher levels of IL-17A and F compared to psoriatic arthritis patients who were biologic demand naive, indicating, making a theory here, is that in some patients, the disease is driven. Of course, we know that IL-23 and IL-17 axis is very important. But in some people, that axis is more important than others. We are not there yet to decide which patient has which axis more important, TNF axis or 23, 17 axis, but this is a very tantalizing result that patients had, uh, those who actually were TNF inhibitor, inadequate responder had baseline levels very high and they responded pretty well to guselcomab. We are talking, I mean, uh, Xenophon's paper, what we discussed was axial spinal arthritis, uh, different drug, et cetera. But getting back to the same idea that uh, maybe IL-17 inhibitors are more effective in TNF inhibitor inadequate responder. But then ixekizumab didn't really have a similar response. Ixekizumab in axial SPA in inadequate response, TNF inhibitor inadequate responder patients had less response compared to those. So this IL-17F may be important uh, in, in these situations. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, I, I thought that when EMA approves a drug, uh, then it is available in Netherlands and Germany and etc. But clearly, I'm wrong. It's, it's not approved here in the US. So you said so, Sophia. But it's approved by the EMA. It's approved in the European countries, but it's not reimbursed now automatically. <sighs> so the countries need to go their internal process of reimbursement, and sometimes yes. it's quicker, sometimes it takes longer. But yes. there are countries that take even much longer. So, but that's the process. So officially it's approved, but without reimbursement, it's the same as not being available. Yeah. So, but regarding your comments, yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. for the rheumatological indications yet. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I would like to comment on what you were saying because I was going to even to 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 raise the provocative question of whether bimekizumab is a new, really new mode of action or is an IL-17 inhibitor. And I think this point that we are discussing is already the first that can help us question whether it's the same mechanism of action or whether the dual inhibition isn't really a slightly different mechanism of action. And I think the other one is the signal on uveitis, as we see that uh, in, with, with bimekizumab patients seem to have less uh, or a lower rate of uveitis, uh, certainly compared to placebo in the first phases and then throughout the, the trial as well. And while with other IL-17 inhibitors, we do not see that. And we actually see that they are not efficacious, and especially data on sacokinumab is available, not efficacious on uh, uveitis at all. So this is also a, a distinction uh, between molecules from the IL-17 inhibitors class. So I, I wonder whether this dual inhibition is not really uh, classifying it as a, a, a different mechanism of action and therefore being responsible for some 
slightly different uh, effects and that we that are reflected in in this different efficacy what what is your take on that any of you can start so, yeah quickly i mean so <laughs> um the, theoretical what we think and then what practical you find is two different things and um yes i mean i i the what i originally quoted that um i'll 17f blocking may be important in patients who are TNF inhibitor inadequate responder. Having said that, we recently completed a um, network meta-analysis of uh, systematic literature review network meta-analysis because there is no comparison between IL-17A inhibitors versus IL-17AF inhibitors, which is what the hidden question is. Is this drug different than just an IL-17A inhibitor, bimekizumab? So looking at when you do, when we did this uh, network meta-analysis, we found interestingly there was no superiority of bimekizumab at least in the network meta-analysis compared but, uh, to too, before. Either, before, yeah, just before. Okay. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm doing this on purpose because of the type of the comment I will make, which is: to what extent can we believe network meta-analysis? So, regardless of the result that you are telling, so. Uh, uh, I think that what we want is head-to-head -head studies. If the head-to-head -head studies are not there, are we now believing on artificial comparisons of patients that have not been compared? Different trial populations uh, with differences between them. Some are completely TNF inhibitor naive. Other are a mixed population. What are we comparing? Aren't we comparing no, apples so, and oranges? No, no, you're right. And that's why in network meta-analysis, we specifically separated TNF inhibitor inadequate responder trials, mixed trials, and biologic DMARD naive trials. And that's what I was going to say. Um, we did actually did that uh, very carefully. And in the TNF inhibitor inadequate responder trials, there was no difference when you do network meta-analysis. And yes, there are limitations to network meta-analysis, but I doubt that any company will really do head-to-head -head studies between IL-17A versus IL-17A and F inhibitor because it was done in psoriasis, right? Sorry? It was done in psoriasis. Yeah, they did it in psoriasis because they had surety that they probably will do better. If it is kind of close kind of stuff, then they're very unlikely to do in the... Uh, it, it's very difficult to show superiority in any uh, for any drugs when it comes to musculoskeletal manifestations. So we actually looked at when we separated out, we didn't really use the... We, we did not take the mixed population and there was no difference is what I was going to say. In fact, if at all there was a difference, there was a difference with secukinumab. Exikizumab was not not uh, not with exikizumab. So by bimekizumab was superior to secukinumab in the network meta-analysis in patients with axial spondyloarthritis who were mostly biologic DMARD naive and that too in only a couple of outcome measures, ASS20 and ASS40, but not for high hurdle endpoints like SDS, inactive disease, and et cetera. So there are all these kind of stuff. When you say superior, non-superior, which outcome measures? What type of population, as you are saying, naive, mixed, inadequate responder, et cetera. So anyway, it, it, it's very exciting. And I mean, it's kind of, you make theories about this. And here again, our clinical experience will tell us whether this drug works very well in patients with uh, who are inadequate responder. Um, who bother to TNF inhibitor. Any last comments from you, Xenophon? 
Well, I, I, I see the comment from a tool. I understand that, yes, there might be different reasons for having inflammation um, and uh, or having issues with this activity. And uh, that is something that is extremely interesting as a theory um, beyond or next to what we've just did. I, I made a comment or two uh, in the beginning. I think both may exist or maybe co even coexist. Yeah. Um, it's it's really an interesting um, approach. We just need to see that um, by any kind of different studies that will come in the in the future. Unfortunately, indeed, I don't expect anyone to do a study with a direct comparison. This means head to head in the field of AXPA, which is unfortunate. But we well, we'll continue learning from the data. Yes, definitely. I think we have had a very rich discussion, and we could continue for a long time, but. Uh... I think uh, this is bringing us to the end of uh, this uh, podcast. Thank you very much to both of you for this uh, good discussion. And thank you, you all, for joining us in this uh, AXPA podcast brought to you by the CSF. We really hope you find it useful. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you hear your, your podcast from so that you don't miss, miss any future episodes. And if you want to read more about what we've discussed today, head over to cytokinesignaling.com where you'll find summary slides of both of these papers. See you next time.